Okay. Uh, welcome to Almost Road Podcast. This is Almodor Jr., your host, and we have my friend Arjuna Daz. Arjuna, can you uh, introduce yourself? So I live in New Zealand. Uh, I was born in Auckland, moved to Canada when I was eight. I lived there for 11 years and moved back to New Zealand at age 19. Uh, growing up, I got into Christianity at about 11, quite seriously, was praying every day. Uh, when I was 16, I started to find it philosophically unsatisfying. So I became somewhat eclectic. Uh, so I still always believed in God, but I, I didn't think that any one religion had uh, a, a comprehensive theology that I could uh, take shelter of. So I just sort of took good ideas where I found them. Uh, and then when I moved back to New Zealand uh, at the age of 21, I met the Harry Krishnas and I heard Dave Ramita Swami give this class and the philosophy made complete sense to me. Kept hearing more classes, started reading the books and took up the process of Krishna consciousness. Um, since doing that, I've lived in, been living in Auckland, uh, Got married seven years ago to my lovely wife, and we have two children. One of them's age one, and the other one's age four, two boys. And I work as an electrician doing commercial maintenance, which is quite cushy work because I basically, uh, most of the work is changing light bulbs in air conditioned office buildings. And that, that allows me to be able to listen to lectures and audiobooks and seminars basically all day long while I'm at work. So I listen to a lot of stuff, uh, you know, Harry Krishna lectures. So I, I hear the, heard the philosophy quite well, listen to audiobooks, and then listen to... Lately, I've been studying economics because I'm trying to figure out how to invest so that I can protect my wealth with the economy looking like it's falling apart. And Okay, and I'm, I want, I'm interested in what problems did you find in Christianity and what was in Christian consciousness or being in Hare, Hare Krishna that made you uh, made up your mind? Um, to be honest, I can't remember all the details of what it was that made me disillusioned when I was 16, but I can tell you where I see it having shortcomings now. Um, so in, in Krishna consciousness, it's a really detailed theology, like uh, Prabhupada, who's the founder of the Hare Krishna movement in the West, uh, he would say that, you know, we, we can tell you uh, practically God's phone number. There's so many details given in Bhagavatam about God, you know, his, his looks are described, what he does with his free time is described, his intimate associates are described, and there's a process given to connect with him. And also the Bhagavatam mentions about other religions. So um, uh, it doesn't mention all of them, but it, it mentions a few like Buddhism and some of the other uh, religious beliefs that you find in India and mentioned. And that's described a purpose, why they exist, uh, how they serve a purpose. And then like uh, it said that Buddha came to, because the people on the time in India were being really sinful and they were doing all these animal sacrifices, but they weren't doing them properly. You know, it's a bit mystical, but supposedly an animal sacrifice done properly the animal goes into the fire and comes out with a new body. So there's actually not actually any violence committed, but they weren't doing it properly and they were committing violence to animals. So Buddha came and said, just get rid of all these Vedas, get rid of all these rituals and just be compassionate. Don't cause suffering to other living entities. So it, it reduced the, the caliber of the theological teachings 
but for a higher purpose of getting the basic principles inculcated. And then uh, Sankaracharya came and gave a more comprehensive... He, he gave a like a... You call it like a bait and switch. He he brought the Vedas back in, but kind of kept the same principles. And then later other Acharyas came and brought back in monotheism, like Madhavacharya and um, Ramanujacharya. So in Christianity, we don't, there's no real explanation of why other religions exist. Like uh, I was having a discussion on Facebook with some, with one Christian in the Capturing Christianity Facebook discussion group because I posted my video and he was saying, oh, but the differences matter. I was like, well, what are the differences? And he said, well, uh, in, um, like for, for one, Muslims don't accept Jesus. I was like, well, that's a detail. He's like, well, who gets to decide what a detail is? I'm like, okay, well, if, if God cares about a theological detail, you know, like whether you accept Jesus or not, then he's a bureaucrat who cares more about who, who isn't so interested in the quality of your character as much as he cares about whether you're filled in the form correctly. Cause um, like, you know, you, you could be dedicating your whole life to serving God and sharing the message about God with other people, but just happen to be doing it in a religion other than Christianity. And according to some Christians, you'd be going to hell because you didn't accept Jesus. And to me, if God is actually like that, then that's incompatible with the idea that God's all loving because that kind of paints God as a bureaucrat or even a tyrant. You know, like if if my children mispronounce my name, I don't really care. (laughs) I know what they want, you know, like especially with a one-year-old or a two-year-old, they they can't pronounce things properly. So you just figure out what they want and give it to them. So I figure an all-loving God and according to the theology of Krishna consciousness, it's like that it like... Uh, attaining mercy from God isn't like some kind of vending machine where you, you push all the right buttons and bang, you get the mercy. It's actually God's a person and he interacts with us on a personal, le- personal level, responding to the nuances and our motivations and our desires and our shortcomings and you know, accounting for those things and reciprocating accordingly. So, you, you know, the, the vending machine analogy, you know, you could like, do everything correctly externally, but actually have a, an attitude which is really off. And then God's going to respond to that. And the other issue with Christianity is they don't accept reincarnation. And without that, there's a lot of things you can't explain. You get two problems. One is you can't really explain the problem of evil. Like philosophically, you can say, you can have a skeptical theism like, well, you know, we, we, God could have a good reason for, you know, giving babies cancer. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't actually explain why why this kid has cancer, not another kid. And um, whereas with reincarnation and karma, you can say, well, that that kid, you know, I mean, it's a, it's not an excuse to not have compassion for somebody when they're suffering. That's that's a misapplication of it. But you, it's a philosophical answer, not an emotional answer. It's not what you tell somebody's parents whose kid has cancer. It's a philosophical thing, but it, from a philosophical point of view, it has a lot of explanatory power because that kids lived lives in the past and they've made decisions and had cultivated certain attitudes. And so that kid is then different from another kid and God's giving them a situation with the purpose of, you know, elevating their consciousness or freeing them from certain bad mentalities they have or whatnot. And it's crafted to them based on attitudes they've cultivated from past lives, which need to be 
dealt with. And the other problem with not having reincarnation is um, it's hard to say God's all loving if he only gives us a very small window window of opportunity to attain his mercy. Like, like I, I've I made a video on this subject how, um, re, well, I, would, I talked about religious exclusivism. I said I was debunking religious exclusivism, made, made a case for inclusivism based on the premise that God's all loving. So if you accept that God's all loving, then you have to accept that then it would only make sense that God would give us unlimited opportunities to get our act together and return to him. Uh, one really nice analogy which is used to explain this concept is that um, so we we made a decision to turn our back on God uh, and be rebellious. Like we wanted to have our, be famous ourselves because in the spiritual world, all the attention's on God. And that's lovely because God deserves all that attention and, and we get to have attention from God, but everyone's focused on God. They're not focused on us. So if we have this little desire that we want to be special, then we have to go to a dark place because our specialness is not very bright. We're just tiny sparks of the divine. So we come to the material world and get given our own little apartment where we can have a 15 minutes of fame. And that's compared to uh, a child that doesn't want to play with his father anymore. He wants to go to the park and play with his friends. So the loving father picks up his child takes him to the park and sits on the park bench and watches him that entire time waiting for that time when the child says, Daddy, I want to go home now. And the, the moment we make that decision that we want to go and be with God again, then God starts making arrangements to take us back. And that's a really, that, you know, that makes God very happy, just like it makes the father very happy when the child wants to be with him. And the ch the father picks up the child and carries him home. Okay, um, but it seems to me that um, your your belief in God is something that is very basic for you and something that, in a way, you never questioned. But um, in terms of being, because you were formerly a Christian and you found philosophical problems, and I could present a lot of philosophical problems when it comes to reincarnation and Christian consciousness itself. So why not just drop the whole concept and wait for something solid? Well, you say you could present problems, but I don't see problems. We, we could talk about that. I'd be happy to go through the problems. But I, I find the, the theology of Krishna consciousness to be unbelievably satisfying in its ability to explain. Okay, but um, in terms of uh, w um, the problems, I think the one problem is that you have to actually uh, prove that God exists before you believe in him. Right. Well, proof for different subjects is different according to the subject. So, you know, like when they proved the Big Bang, they used different methods for establishing the Big Bang theory than they used for figuring out if a particular drug uh, gives a medical benefit without unwarranted side effects. Uh, so for different types of knowledge claims, there's different types of evidence uh, like if you want to tell me you have a headache, I pretty much have to take your word for it. I can't, you know, enter your body and experience your headache. It's not an ability that I have. So for proving God's existence, it's like there's this idea that uh, like epistemological imperialism, uh, which is basically means epistemic bullying, where the sort of skeptical scientific Western idea that everything needs to have empirical evidence uh, is used to beat up 
every other type of knowledge domain. So it's like, well, you, you don't have any empirical evidence that God exists. But that's based on this idea that, well, first of all, you can't prove empirically that we should have empirical proof for everything. So it's a self-referentially incoherent idea. It's self-defeating. Mm-hmm. Okay, but um, I, but I'm not gonna debate with you on in terms of whether God is real, you know, um, because uh, but I want to talk about, for example, um, what is the nature or ontology of the God that you believe in? I'll just finish that idea quickly. So what I was getting to is is proof for God is is personal. So we we have you know just like I have personal experience which tells me this material world is real, the quality of my experience proves itself to me, and um, my the quality of my interactions with other people proves that other people are conscious to me and a similar way my interactions with the cosmos let's say proves to me that the cosmos is co- conscious and that consciousness is god it's sort of a panpsychism no I it's guess. not panpsychism i was just i was just drawing an analogy from the body of another person to the universe so panpsychism we we see that there's a material energy and then like it's described in the Bhagavatam that the universe is, is the body of God, but it's a temporary body. God, God has a body in the spiritual world, but a spiritual body. But um, like God is the soul of the universe in a sense. He, he animates it. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's panpsychism. Okay, so it's more of a panen uh, the- theism, I guess, that um, there's a, God, a spiritual f- uh, form of God, but he also manifests in or animates the physical universe. Yeah, well, not, yeah, everything's working on, like ultimately everything's God energy, God's energy, like even we're part of God's energy. It's just, there's, we have this doctrine called, a chincha beta beta tattva, which is simultaneous oneness and difference. So uh, like we are one with God in a sense, like we have similar qualities to him. We're made out of the same substance as him, but we're different from him in quantity. So there's ways in which there's oneness and there's ways in which there's difference. It's a, it's an, and it's a really beautiful um, synergy of a synthesis of two different conflicting theologies, which go back through Indian history of, um, you know, monism that everything's one and uh, Dwightism that there's two separate things, you know, like us and God are separate and you get the same debate in uh, pretty, pretty much every world religion. Okay, but so um, in a way you uh, set yourself apart from uh, the monistic religions, I guess, or is that right? Yeah, we, we, we really go after monism, the idea that there's only one thing or impersonalism, the idea that the ultimate, that all this sort of uh, variety that we see in the material world is just an illusion. And actually at the deepest level, reality is uh, some, I, I've been calling it lately a, a warm, fuzzy light. This is an idea that's common in India. It's, it's kind of like Buddhism, you know, they call it Nirvana, the idea that the absolute truth is, well, there's a few Sanskrit words for it. There's Nirvashesha and Shunyavad. Uh, Shunya means nothing. So the worldview that there's nothing at ultimately the end of it, or um, it's also called Mayavad. Nirvashesha also is another way of saying nothing. So we really go after those worldviews because they they take away the personal aspect and they're also hard on the heart. A lot of the practitioners of those religious paths do a lot of austerity, which makes the heart grow hard. And um, yeah, we think the idea of devotion to God and variety in the spiritual world and personalism and uh, the highest level is personalities having relationships is a, 
essential and really important element of a religious practice. Okay, but in terms of that, do you believe in the classical theory of God? They're like um, omnipresence, omnipotence. Yeah, we, we we believe in that. We've actually got six. I usually can only remember five of them. Let's see how I go. Uh, basically, the word Bhagavan in Sanskrit, it's it's basically the most basic word for God. It means full of all opulences. So there's six opulences. So he's got all beauty, all fame, all strength, all renunciation, all riches, and there's one more. I'll just pull it up. I should memorize them properly. Six opulences of Lord Krishna. Uh, beauty, knowledge, strength, wealth, fame, and renunciation. So he's the most beautiful. He's got the most knowledge, which would be omniscience. He's the strongest, which I guess would be omnipotence. Uh, he's the richest, the most famous, and even renunciation, which you wouldn't normally think of it as an opulence, but it is actually an opulence because, you know, like imagine somebody's got a fancy car outside and it just gets one little scratch on it and they go out of their mind. That shows that they're controlled by their wealth. And so whereas to be detached and have renunciation and be able to just not care to go without is another kind of opulence. Okay, but in, in terms of uh, being a Christian consciousness, how do you view the Bible or the New Testament or Jesus? So we we accept Jesus as a great prophet who gave a wonderful message of love of God and a lot of quotes from Jesus and like the the core essence of what he taught. We totally accept and see it in line with our teachings. Of course, we put a different spin on it than a Christian would, but it's, I don't think it's much of a stretch to interpret it in ways which are consistent with Krishna consciousness. Um, but, I mean, there is a lot of stuff in the Bible that doesn't seem that God-conscious, like all the stuff that the atheists go after it for, like, you know, the slavery and stuff. So I really wonder how much of it is uh, divinely inspired and how much of it is people editing in the things that enable them to justify what they were already doing and, you know, crafting a theology that, you know, basically from their own human minds, um, like some one, one scholar in our movement really goes after Paul that like he was a, and Augustine, Augustine was a, Augustine and Paul are basically the fathers, the architects of Christian theology. And both of them are questionable because Paul was, before he became a Christian, murdering people because he didn't like their religious belief. And um, I mean, I, but there's not many of those people around today, thank God, but you'd think that if there's somebody who's prepared to kill somebody just because they don't like their religion, that even if that person reforms, you, you don't really want them coming up with the you know, architecting the doctrine, right? Like, you know, if somebody's has a criminal background, you don't put them in charge of the treasury, right? So if somebody's got a history of being a religious fanatic, then maybe if they craft the religious doctrine, then you'll get a fanatical religion, which unsurprisingly, the, the theology that Paul crafted resulted in hundreds of years of violence caused by Christians. Uh, and Augustine, um, he... He was for 10 years of his adult life a Manichaean. And the Manichaeanism is a really dark 
religious system where they see that God's evil and he wants us to suffer. And I haven't studied it much, but basically it's a really bizarre belief. And he carried some of that with him into Christianity, which is perhaps... Yeah, I have a question before we, we continue on that. Um, um, because uh, um, Christian consciousness is based on a, a lot of Hinduistic uh, belief systems, right? So in, in, that, in, that, in that case, would you say that that um, Hindu, some a lot of Hindu beliefs also caused violence and suffering in the in, in history. Well, historically, that hasn't been the case. In recent years, it would appear that that's the case. But as soon as you go back prior to the Mughal invasion, which was the group of Muslims that invaded uh, 700, 800, 900 years ago, something. There was 700 years of, of Muslim rule in India. Uh, so prior to the Mughal invasion, there was not a single religious war. Uh, there, were, there was no cultural genocides, nothing. So this is the reason why today in India, practically you go from one village to the next and they have a different language and a different culture because they were a, a culturally plural society and they just didn't persecute each other over religious beliefs. So, I mean, there is, so there's, there's that. And then there's this modern uh, thing called the caste system, which is actually a degraded interpretation of the Varnashram system. And the Varnashram system was actually just a way of classifying people based on their psychophysical nature into different job categories. There's four job categories, the um, artists, who do skilled work with their hands, um, make and create beauty. The, the Vaishyas who do business, mercantile stuff and produce wealth. So the highest class of Vaishya were farmers growing food. That's the best way to produce wealth for society. And then there were the Kshatriyas who were the rulers. And they, you know, the king was the first person fighting in the battle. If there was ever a war, the king was the one charging you know, leading the charge in the battlefield, which I think if we did that today, we wouldn't have so many crazy wars. You know, imagine if Donald Trump had to be the one fighting the war. I don't think he'd be starting so many wars or, you know, George Bush, who started a lot of wars. Uh, but that's another point. And then there's the Brahmins who were the intellectual class and they engage in ideas. So when you break up, you, when you figure out what someone's like, it's, it, the psychophysical nature wasn't supposed to be by birth, but today in the degraded version, it's considered to be based on birth. So my father was a Brahmin, therefore I'm a Brahmin. But in Vedic culture, they had this word Bra, uh, Bandhu, which meant uh, you're a friend of a Brahmin. So that was a, it was kind of an insult, but it's a way of saying, you know, you're born into a Brahmin family, but you're not actually a Brahmin. Um. And it, this, it was actually based on qualities, not on birth. So today in the degraded version, it's based on birth and they use it to discriminate against the other classes because, you know, the Brahmin is supposed to be the highest. But, but really, when it's followed properly, it doesn't create that kind of divisiveness. It, it creates a really cohesive society, which we don't have today. Today, you know, people go to school for 20 years and don't know what their psychophysical nature is and don't know what they want to do for a career. And then people with people get into a career that doesn't suit the psychophysical nature, which is a disaster in many cases. Like if someone's a, got a businessman nature and they're doing uh, work in the field of ideas, they'll just try to monetize all the ideas. Or, you know, if someone's in the field of ideas and they're working in government, that they won't be able to make decisions quickly enough because 
ideas people spend a long time thinking and they can't make decisions fast enough. And basically there's just lots of ways where if you're if you have a particular psychophysical nature and you're working in the wrong type of career, it's bad for society and it's bad for you. So yeah, going back to your question, I, I don't yeah, the 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 Vedas, when followed properly, do not create violence or poverty or discrimination. Uh, I mean, when something's not followed properly, like Jesus said, the the letter without the spirit kills. So like anything that has great power for good also has great power for evil or a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. So if you take a religious theology and don't follow it properly, that's a disaster. You know, it's like, I mean, you can give a practical example. You know, imagine like if I started giving advice on how to invest in the stock market and got all these people following me, betting on the stock market based on what I was telling them. Like, I don't know how to invest in the stock market. I don't know how to time the market. I don't know what stocks to buy. So a whole lot of people would go broke just because some idiot like me, you know, who didn't have the knowledge that I claim to have, put out my shingle and got people to listen to me. Whereas if somebody who knows what they're doing you know, it gives advice and people follow that, then they can make a lot of money. So it's a similar way with uh, religious teachings. If if you get them wrong, you can mislead a lot of people and really mess up society. Like not just like make people miss out on salvation in this lifetime. You can really create havoc in society and have like the kind of religious wars that we've been seeing for the last 2000 years. Okay. Um, I want to ask then because um, uh, Chris, uh, being a Hare Krishna, uh, you uh, prioritize re- uh, religious inclusiveness, right? So how I have two questions on that. First, um, how do how would you include the Islamic religion in in that? And second, how would you, for example, um, establish a a bridge between uh, those religions who were uh, simply created out of um, deception or uh, to make uh, money out of people? Um, I think there's very few popular religions that don't have a a genuine origin. Um, I mean, like there's some modern ones like I really don't know what to make of Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or so on. Or I mean, Scientology is probably the worst example. Like that's just nuts. Um, But as far as like the major monotheisms like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, we, we see them as having a genuine beginning with real prophets and having many prophets through their history who had genuine spiritual realization and a real advanced relationship with God. Um, but we see them as having a different caliber of teaching. So, you know, Krishna came and spoke Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna was, who was like incredibly qualified. Uh, so the teachings that Krishna was able to impart to Arjuna were of a high caliber. And Lord Chaitanya came 500 years ago and gave, and spoke to the six Goswamis who are considered to be some of the greatest uh, scholars and intellectuals of Indian history, particularly, definitely of their time, like uh, Rupa Goswami and Jiva Goswami are considered to be intellectual giants of their time. The amount of literature they wrote is phenomenal. And um, it's all composed in Sanskrit, which is a very complex language to work with. Um, So yeah, high caliber teachings, whereas Jesus came and his followers were basically farmers and peasants in the Middle East, which wasn't at the time such an advanced culture. 
in a similar way, Muhammad himself wasn't that special. He got given the service of delivering this message. Um, and, you know, that, that, you know, like, you know, if you, ha- if you, ha- if the le- lecture is given and part of the lecture is, you know, just basic things about hygiene, it's like, okay, well, <laughs> the people must have needed to hear that. There must have been a, be a low quality audience. So, and in, in the Quran and the Bible, you you get statements like you know don't sleep with your mother and so on, which suggests that the people at the time were doing those things and needed to be told it told not to do that. Whereas in Bhagavad Gita, you don't get that. You just get a very high level spiritual knowledge. Um, so as far as people practicing those religions, I think Krishna, those religions can obviously be, connect people with God to some extent, and a, a sincere practitioner can get uh, guidance from within the heart by God to take them further. <clears throat> so like you get many of the Christian saints went vegetarian because I guess they came to a certain level of realizations where they felt that they couldn't uh, participate in the violence perpetrated to animals just to satisfy their tongues or to feed their belly. Okay, um, uh, this is what I think, you know, but you could correct me if I'm wrong. I, I'm, I don't really know much about um, uh, being, uh, being a Hare Krishna. But um, it seems that um, the Christian consciousness is a response to the analytical philosophy that is applied to uh, monotheistic religions. So, in a way, Hinduism uh, decided to... Uh, adapt and uh, be part of the this uh, these reli- religions that that have liberal values and um, create in a way a very uh, inclusive uh, s- a form of belief system you know but th- th- that's what I think because um, in in actuality when you look at India you know in its pluralistic religions um, it doesn't seem to be as developed as what the Hare Krishna present uh, Eastern philosophy or Eastern religions to be, and uh, with all the the uh, yeah, um, I, I was saying that um, if you look at the uh, Eastern religions in, like for example, India, um, they have uh, rituals and practices that seem barbaric still, and are obviously. Um, sim- uh, culturally developed as so well, a, a Christian would call pagan or whatnot, and um, well, this is uh something that I think is I, I don't know. You could correct me. Uh, well, yeah, you, you definitely get barbaric stuff going on in, in India today, for sure. Um, but like, like I was saying before, with the sort of to- religious tolerance. In India, um, you know, if if the Christians hadn't gone around killing people, you 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 would have had Christianity growing up alongside all sorts of varieties of pagan worldviews. Also, so in India, you have those things there alongside the bona fide monotheistic theology, just because they didn't go around exterminating people for having a different belief. Um, but I mean, when you say you think Krishna consciousness is a response to a sort of analytics of the West, what sort of timeline would you give to that? 
Well, I think that, for example, um, in terms of who the founder of Hare Krishna is, you can see actually when the 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 theology of or the philosophy actually began or appeared, and this sort of philosophy never existed before. So, Prabhupada, he he didn't actually offer a new theology or change anything. Uh, everything he taught is fully consistent with what his guru taught which is Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And what Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur goes back to his guru, Srila Bhakti Vinod Thakur. And by then we're in the, go back that far, we're in the early 1800s. So is that far enough back to not work for your theory? How far do we have to go back before your theory falls over? Um, 1800s is still a, a, a little um, recent, you know, but I think that, for example, when you compare it to um the age of christian theology like for reaching from the middle ages to the medieval times yeah so back to no takor was actually a christian at one point and he he changed to krishna consciousness but he so he had a quite an inclusivist worldview and he wrote a lot about christianity and different worldviews um so perhaps you could make that argument about him um but he was studying the teachings of the six Goswamis, which is 500 years ago. So now we're in 15th century um, in West Bengal. And there wasn't Christianity on the scene then. And then uh, ultimately our core scripture is Bhagavad Gita. And in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna himself is speaking this kind of inclusivism. Krishna doesn't give anything like uh, fanatical religion or exclusivist religion in Bhagavad Gita. He gives uh, principle-based. So he, he describes it almost like you might hear uh, psychology explained, like psychological principles, like, you know, this kind of thing leads to depression. This kind of thing leads to happiness. This kind of thing leads to an even deeper kind of sat satisfaction, which cannot accurately be called happiness. Like, you know, like a, a, someone who really knows psychology might say, well, you can make that decision, but if you go down that road, this will be the consequence. And um, so that's basically the way Krishna speaks, the way a, way a good counselor or psychologist might coach somebody and say, well, you can make your own decision, but this will happen. So Krishna speaks Bhagavad Gita to Arjuna. At the end, he says, you know, I've given you all this knowledge. Now you make your decision. And through, throughout it, he's saying, you know, people who worship the demigods go to the demigods. People who worship the ancestors go to the ancestors and, and so on. And, you know, ultimately people who worship me go to me. So... It's and uh, there's so many other points he makes where it's not once does he say you know you have to go to a Krishna church and you have to pledge your life to Krishna he, he you know he he's I mean he's saying me a lot but you know you, you examine philosophically and me in that sense means God you know like Bhagavan is another word for God Allah is a, is the Arabic word for God and there's Christian names for God and it, it's all through. The core scriptures that there's a variety of names for God and yeah. What does a uh, Hare Krishna um, mean, by the way? Oh, that the name the name Krishna in English means uh, the all attractive one. It also means black because Krishna is described as having a blackish or, a, or like a complexion like a dark rain cloud. Um, but the the real meaning is attractive. So we chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. That's our core meditation. We chant it as Japa, sort of like muttering it to ourselves uh, and you know like a like a meditation where, where we're just meditating on the mantra and we also do it in kirtan which is uh congregational chanting where we have drums and cartels and we all sing in a group 
call and response. And uh, the word Rama also means the source of all pleasure, and that's another name for Krishna. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, what, what about Hari? What does that mean? Uh, Hari is from Hada. It's the vocative form. It's uh, the, the Hari Krishna Maha Mantra, which I just um, gave, is in the vocative form, which is quite unusual for Sanskrit mantras. Usually they're in the um, like Namo Namaha, like I offer my obeisances to, is the grammatical form of Namo Namaha. Whereas um, Hare Krishna is in the vocative, which means calling out to. So it's like, hey, Krishna. It's like directly addressing God. And uh, so Hare is the vocative of Hara, which is the, the so you could call it a divine female energy. So Krishna's got his, like the mother Hara. Krishna's got his um, consort Radharani, who ex- also expands from there into various other um, shaktis and personalities. But... um. The original form is like the divine original mother Hara. So there's there's the, the two there, you know, Krishna's Krishna and his consort, and they're both there in the mantra. So we're calling out to the divine mother and to. Okay, and I want to ask, like, um, in terms of behavioral philosophy, uh, what that does being a Hare Krishna teach you as an individual, and how you uh, should act in your daily life, your thought process. Um. So. Like one verse in Bhagavatam, which is our expanded main scripture, it's it's described as the graduate study to Bhagavad Gita. One verse in there says Anta Narayana Smriti, which means the, the goal of life is to remember Vishnu at the time of death. And that's the whole process of how we live our lives now that we, we try to fix our mind on God. So there's one famous verse in Bhagavad Gita where, where Krishna uses the word me like six times. Uh, where, you know, it says, you know, always think of me offer your love to me and you'll come to me and so on. So uh, we are psychologists. It's good that you, I like how you put it in a psychological frame because it, that you could call it yoga psychology. Um, so uh, one common argument for the existence of the soul that we use is that, you know, if the soul didn't exist and we were just material bodies, then you fill your belly you know, you have you satisfy all your senses and you should be happy, right? But it doesn't work like that. You get all these famous people like Muhammad Ali was one of them and so many of them, uh, George Harrison. Uh, I think George Harrison had a guru in India tell him that you're very lucky. You know, most people spend their whole life trying to climb the wall. You're very lucky to have gotten on top of the wall at a young age to figure out that there's nothing there. You know, because George Harrison, you know, had fame and wealth beyond anything we could ever dream of attaining. And he wasn't satisfied. So this proves that that we're not our bodies, that there's something else there. So that we have a soul. And, you know, just like where there's thirst, there's water, you know, we have hunger and food exists. So many desires we have, there's, there's something that exists which can satisfy them. So similarly, we've got a, a God-shaped hole in our heart. And, you know, like you can have a, a sports car and you shine the wheels and you put petrol in the tank and you get it serviced and you do all these things but you don't feed the driver and you're driving around and you're hungry and you're thinking, hmm, why aren't I satisfied? Maybe I'll put some more fuel in the car. So we do this, you know, we have this hole in our heart and we think, oh, I'm not satisfied. Oh, I know I'll eat some more. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, I'm not satisfied. Oh, I'll break up with this person and start a relationship with someone else. Oh, that didn't work. I'll do it again. And we, uh, you know, people go on like this, ch- ch- adjusting so many different things. It's one, one analogy for it is um, you're carrying this heavy log and you think, oh, this is so painful. It's giving me so much grief carrying this heavy log. 
And then you come up with this genius idea. You, you shift it from carrying it with your arms to carrying it on your shoulder. And you get this great sensation of relief. You think, oh, that's so much better. You know, I, those muscles that were under strain now aren't under strain anymore. I can relax. And you're walking along before you know it. You start aching again. So in a similar way, uh, I think in psychology, they call it a, a dopamine adaptation curve where whatever level of dopamine stimulation you expose yourself to, your brain just gets used to it and that becomes the baseline and you constantly have to increase it in order to become satisfied. So we, we uh, our theology teaches that, that you need to, to some extent, restrict engaging in that kind of dopamine-driven activity, which ultimately just leaves you unsatisfied and uh, instead take satisfaction from hearing about God, chanting God's names and, and telling other people about God and basically just connecting with God and thinking about God. And when we do that, we become satisfied on a deeper level. And I mean, it's another way I like to argue Pascal's wager, which is like, hey, even if this isn't true, this is a good life. You know, I'm way more satisfied and way more happy than I ever could have been going out into the material world trying to fill my tank with sense gratification. Like that's just a really hollow existence. Yeah, and I wanted, um, I, I just want to say that, bro. This is this has been a great conversation, and I've never talked to so, uh, someone from the Hare Krishna uh, religion before or belief system, and it's been in, really interesting. And I just want to ask you uh, two two last questions to end this, you know, because um, so um, the first question is that. Um, uh, if there's any misunderstanding or misinterpretation uh, of what the Hare Krishna believe, um, what or that a bad, I think a bad view from other people that view it as uh, something uh, a paganistic or uh, cult, um, uh, what would you tell them? And secondly, uh, being someone who has known this truth and you know that this gives you a good life. Uh, what would you do to make this world a better place? Um, there's a lot in there. Um, the common misconceptions, there would be a few of them. One of them would be the caste system, which I already addressed. Another would be that um, we're a fanatical cult. And um, I mean, to, to give the devil his due, there has been a lot of fanaticism going on in the Hare Krishna movement over the years. It was kind of a Vedic Lord of the Flies at one point. But um, a lot of us have grown and become more mature and you, you know, you can't judge God, shouldn't judge a theology by the people who aren't following it properly. Um, so yeah, the, the Vedic Lord of the Five thing, just to, to cover that point again, we, um, as with any religion, you, you get um, people who don't represent the religion very well and aren't following it. And as with all of them, those people don't represent the tradition. So for the misconception that we're fanatical, I'd say those people don't represent our tradition and that's not what I joined for. And I know a lot of people that are not like that. So that's the answer for that. Uh, and then I think I moved on to the misconception of um, that we're pantheistic. So I can see why people would think that because we talk about Vishnu and Ganesh and Shiva and so many different personalities which have um, all these mystical powers. Um, but we're very explicit that that uh, all those personalities are second to the Vishnu Tattva personalities, of which there's many of, but they're ultimately just different expressions or different uh, 
manifestations of the same person. So we've, we've got different personalities. You know, I go to work and I express one side of my personality and I come home and I play with my baby and I express another feature of my personality, play with my four-year-old and it's another and interact with my wife and it's a different feature of my personality. So in a similar way, God's got different features of his personalities for interacting with all his myriad of devotees and he's got different forms that he takes for those different personalities. He's got a number of forms and, uh, you know, we, when I want to express a different part of my personality, I, you know, I have to walk from the office to, to the car, drive home, whereas um, God can do them all simultaneously. So it's not actually pantheism, it's monotheism. It's just more complicated than other theologies. We've got more detail about God. Um, what were your other questions? Yeah, so how how, how would you uh, make the world a better place knowing the truth that you have right now? Well, we would make the world a better place by giving people a kind of happiness that reduces greed. So one, what is it? There's enough in the world for everybody's need, but not enough for everybody's greed. Or uh, one of our great uh, acharyas, acharyas, what's what we call prophet, uh, Bhakti Siddhanta said that there's no scarcity in this world the only scarcity is of Krishna consciousness, which is just another way of saying of love of God. So, you know, if there's Christians that are having genuine connections with God and Muslims that are having genuine connections with God and so on, that counts to us as Krishna consciousness because when we say Krishna, we just mean God. So if people are being God conscious and dedicating their lives to loving God, then that, even if they're not in our religion, that serves the same psychological purpose in society of reducing greed. Um, and like a lot of people comment, I can't remember the name of the one I was listening to, but it's, a, it's about how we make the world a better place by removing greed and providing a kind of deeper satisfaction, which means people don't have to try to chase the satisfaction in ways that won't actually provide it. And this will, well, first of all, people will be happier because they'll actually have their needs met rather than trying to feed it. See, you know, it's like if you're hungry and all you do is eat Oreos and potato chips, you, you'll end up feeling sick and you'll still be hungry because you won't have got the nourishment you need. Whereas by adding God consciousness into your life, you actually get the need of the soul met and it becomes satisfying. Even, you know, if you want to be totally skeptical and say, well, we can't know any of this stuff's true. It's still, we can measure psychologically the results. There's one famous psychologist who said that uh, theism is psychology's best kept secret so it's, it's pretty clear that a religious community and a belief in god is satisfying so that's the end of it thanks for tuning in guys this is your host elmo Ador jr and thank you for listening in and please subscribe please follow us on facebook please please follow this please thanks <laughs> <laughs>